Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. This week, we're going to talk about Donald Trump's immigration policies and what's really going on at our southern border. Uh, and as everyone knows, the, the past three years under President Trump have been filled with a lot of disturbing xenophobia, hatred, heartless policy decisions, uh, all targeted at immigrants. So this summer, I had a chance to personally go down to the border to visit El Paso, Texas, to see uh, detention centers, uh, to look firsthand at how our immigration system is operating. And I was joined on that trip by a colleague of mine from Texas, uh, Representative Colin Allred. And uh, that whole trip was facilitated by the special guest that I'm gonna have on the podcast this week, a new member of Congress, Veronica Escobar from El Paso. She helped arrange for uh, Colin Allred and myself to uh, not only see immigration facilities in El Paso, but also cross the border into Mexico and find out how our policies are affecting people there. So I want to welcome Veronica Escobar to the podcast. She's also the newest member of uh, Speaker Pelosi's leadership team. I mentioned that she represents the great city of El Paso. Uh, she has been hailed by the New York Times uh, as the house's voice of passion and reason on the border. And obviously, she's deeply rooted in El Paso. Her family has been there for generations. She's an incredible advocate for her city and for the border community and for broader considerations in our immigration policy. And uh, I mentioned that she and her staff have been arranging trips, not just for me, but for dozens of our colleagues. She's literally become like uh, a, a travel brokerage of sorts, uh, <laughs> helping colleagues come to El Paso and see firsthand uh, what these policies are doing. So welcome to the podcast, Veronica. Thank you so much, Jared. Really appreciate the opportunity. And I'm so excited to, to talk to you about an issue that's near and dear to my heart. And to use this as an opportunity to tell your constituents how much I appreciate you and what a thoughtful, kind, and generous leader you are in the Congress and how meaningful it's been for me to, to learn from you. Oh, that's super They're very kind. lucky to have I you. I didn't even expect nice words like that in this conversation, but I appreciate it. Uh, and if it's okay, I'd like to start off by asking you to tell us about El Paso because uh, it's a city that has been described very differently uh, by Donald Trump and Stephen Miller and people who would have us believe it is this crime-infested place of violence because of its proximity to the border. Uh, and yet, uh, I know because your predecessor, Beto O'Rourke, was my roommate for three years, uh, that El Paso doesn't see itself that way, and the facts don't really lend themselves to that. So tell us about the great city of El Paso. I'm happy to. It is a place that gives me such joy, a place that inspires me every day, um, and families who are among the most incredible people I've ever met in my life. El Paso's on the southern border, as you mentioned, and it really, the way that I've described it is, it's the capital of the border. Mm -hmm. It is right in the middle 
of um, the border from the west coast to the Gulf Coast. So we're situated right in the middle. Um, many important uh, trade routes have gone through El Paso. Uh, migrant routes, trade routes, you name it. A very central connector between the Americas. But um, the, the thing that I appreciate about it the most is that it's, it's a really magical place where two worlds come together. And those two worlds are Mexico and the United States. And they come together in a really beautiful way. We are deeply connected to our sister city of Ciudad Juarez in Chihuahua, mm -hmm. literally right across our various ports of entry, a stone's throw away uh, from one another. And there's an old saying that when Ciudad Juarez sneezes, El Paso catches a cold. <laughs> That's how geographically close we are. But it's also about literally how connected we are. We're connected through history, through um, culture, through our challenges, through our opportunities. We share the same air, the same water, um, the same struggles, the, the, the same hopes. And for the longest time, and this has not just been Republican administrations, unfortunately, it's been our own party as well, Democratic administrations, have painted the border as a place to be feared or mm -hmm. contained. And that really ramped up after September 11th, despite the fact that the uh, terrorists, right, the southern it. border yeah. had absolutely nothing to do with September 11th. There was a lot of fear across the country, understandable fear, but it felt like in the search for a boogeyman, mm -hmm. the southern border became an easy target. Yeah. And the talk of walls and drones and military uh, grew into action and pub real public policy and real significant spending. And communities like mine, which are among the safest in the country, mm -hmm. El Paso, Texas has been among the top three safest communities of its size for two decades, two decades. When, when these statistics started mm -hmm. meaning something to folks, um, despite our safety and security, um, we have been a highly militarized community. And I think we have done that at our peril. I think the way that we have chosen to look at communities like mine really undermines the opportunities through immigration, through trade, and through great bilateral relationships. So it sounds like the border, rather than being a threat to El Paso, has really helped shape El Paso and is something that uh, is embraced. And, and that certainly was a sense I got. I, I was able, with Colin Allred, to simply walk, take a short walk across a footbridge, and we were in Juarez. And uh, families were coming and going, right. uh, doing their shopping, visiting relatives. I mean, there was an incredible amount of commerce and uh, just ordinary uh, interchange that appeared to be underway, and and that that's just the way it is on any given day in El Paso, right? Right. It's it's that's part of to me what makes it so magical. It's it's it really is two worlds that are so deeply intertwined and so deeply connected. At our local university, for example, the University of Texas at El Paso, mm -hmm. our former president, Dr. Diana Natalicio, instituted in-state tuition for students who live in Ciudad Juarez, oh, wow. Chihuahua, Mexico. Oh. So what yeah. a neat thing. Um, I'm a graduate of UTEP, I'm mm -hmm. a UTEP minor, and, and uh, this program was has been around for a long time, this in-state tuition program. And so I had the good fortune of being able to, to 
study on what I consider an almost international campus. I'm surprised to hear a program like that has survived the politics in Texas. Well, that's true, and and I'll tell you, I'm I'm surprised as well. I mean, we we live in a very actually, I, many people call it a red state. We live in a non-voting state yeah. where uh, there's just a, a lot of where there's very low voter turnout, and as a result, it's become controlled by very conservative voices. Um, this program, this in-state tuition program, um, I think has been highly successful, and we have seen opportunities extended to residents of our sister city who are invested um, both uh, financially but also invested in terms of their time and talent in the region. Mm -hmm. And because we see ourselves as one region, we want to see the entire region thrive. Yeah, that's, that's the part that I think uh, Donald Trump and Stephen Miller and the Fox News uh, uh, crowd just have a hard time understanding. Right. It's a zero-sum game for them, Jared, and that's why we have to really start talking about immigration and border communities in a different way. There's the zero-sum game that this administration tries to present the, the, the American public with is the minute that, that we allow somebody else to be successful, mm -hmm. it's at our detriment. Exactly. And that's yeah. not the case. Yeah. Well, I want to talk to you about the visit that I had this summer uh, to El Paso. We were allowed to see uh, a, an adult processing center run by ICE in El Paso. These were folks who were uh, waiting their, their hearings to determine if they qualified for asylum. And some of them uh, were waiting to, uh, to be released. Uh, then we were allowed to see a uh, facility for uh, children, for youth, that were awaiting placement in the foster care system or with relatives. Um, and both of these were pretty controlled facilities. What right. we weren't allowed to see is the part I want to ask you about. Okay. Uh, and that is the, the Border Patrol facilities where it was usually the first stop for folks who were apprehended at the border. Right. Uh, and it's not so pretty and it, it's, not, it's not something that they really want members of Congress to see. Tell us about the part that they refuse to let me see. Right. And that's why I, the, the, it, it pains me that I couldn't be there with you and I wasn't there with you because I was in Homestead, Florida visiting that facility. Many of the families separated and family separation is still occurring today. Many of the families separated um, while the adults would go into the ICE facility the kids were being sent to Homestead. Mm -hmm. So I was sort of trying to track the process. Um, so I couldn't be there with you that weekend, or I would have forced our way in, oh, which, is what I, <laughs> which is what I have done with some <laughs> other members as well. It would have been, yeah, it would have been very insightful. What you would see... So I made the mistake of asking permission. You just show up. Is that the... Well, no, I do ask for permission, but we've, we've built really good relationships with the local folks and so that they have done and 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 big props to them they have worked with us so that um, there can be as much transparency as possible uh, you know those relationships are important they can be kind of mm -hmm. fragile at times yeah. uh, but they're really critical because they allow me to show you all what you need to see and what you would have seen in a border patrol holding facility is essentially a, cr a concrete cell with a, a, a toilet with zero privacy mm -hmm. that, that has been used for decades to hold single male adults. And despite the fact 
that we have been seeing this shift in migration patterns. We've seen them now for five years. Leadership at DHS has never done anything to really address that shift uh, in migration patterns. That's not happened until very recently. And so we first saw families arriving at our front door over five years ago, going on six years now. But the, the structure, the training, the you name it, none of it has changed mm-hmm. to evolve. And by the way, Jared, we're gonna we're gonna see far more of those families arriving as climate change continues course, to really yeah. uh, ravage the planet and force people That's out of their really homes. That's a really important point. We could we could almost have an entire podcast on oh, yeah. the climate refugee crisis yep. that we know is coming. Yep, and and, we, is, and we're yeah. seeing it. I mean, the, I I would bet about a third of the Central American families mm-hmm. are fleeing um, drought. Drought, yeah. exactly. They're not they're not able to feed themselves and so their choice is starvation or yeah. you know, running into the arms of a country that they know doesn't want them. You know, it's 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 terrible. But um, the, so these concrete cells, like really small rooms meant for single adults who are only supposed to be held for 24 hours. And we've seen pictures of the cyclone fencing and the single toilet and, oh, yeah. you know, 50, 60 people crammed into right. with, you know, regardless of gender or family. Right. Children, yeah. small children, people sleeping on floors. I mean, the, what, what, what we have witnessed in my district has been... Um, Shocking, and it's it's what I've described as as a human rights abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that we would not tolerate from other countries that we would be normally denouncing, and and I will tell you, you know, one of the things that I do want to stress is it's it's bad for everyone. This administration's lack of leadership on this, and and in fact, the use of cruelty as a deterrent. It's not just bad for the migrants. It's not just bad for communities like mine, but it's bad for our federal agents as well. Mm-hmm. They're put in these untenable situations where they're, the, all the training that we've invested in for them does not adequately prepare them for, mm-hmm. for what they're confronting. And they're having, I, I can't even imagine what they've had to endure in terms of what, of what they've had to witness. We've had children die in our facilities. It's an interesting point that you raise, and I have to say I was really struck by the fact that most of the personnel I met from ICE at these various facilities, they were Latino. Yeah. And many of them had family in Mexico or had come from Mexico, and they really went out of their way to, to make sure we understood that. Yeah. So we are putting them in a very difficult, an especially difficult uh, right. position on the front line. Right, and so the, the, the cruelty of the administration's approach, it, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why this, it was, all of this was needless in many ways, this, the, the, the dehumanization of these families and, and the, the, the impact to our agents. But you know, the, the cruelty of the administration doesn't just impact migrants, it impacts federal employees as well. Um, but it didn't have to be this way. Mm-hmm. We have alternatives to detention, but this administration has focused on detaining as many migrants as possible. Their view is yeah. you can't build enough beds quickly enough. So until we have the beds, we're going to hold them, even if it means people are dying, even if it means we're putting agents at risk emotionally as well as uh, at risk in terms of their health because they don't want to use the alternatives that are available. So these, these very uh, Spartan warehousing facilities uh, that are the first stop for many of these migrants, 
Uh, aren't there rules about the amount of time you're supposed to be allowed to spend in a facility like that? Absolutely, and our government has been breaking those rules left and right. Yeah, our I think government, it's maybe, what, 72 hours at the most? Right, exactly. So we ran into people that were in the better facilities in El Paso yeah. who had been forced to spend uh, sometimes weeks oh, uh, yeah. or longer in, in that uh, initial holding pen type facility. So that was one problem that, that I was even able to discern. Yeah, I've seen even far worse than that. This summer, uh, during one of my, my visits home, uh, because you and I, you know, as soon as we take our final votes on Thursday, we're yeah. on a plane headed home, uh, trying to spend as much time in the district with our constituents as possible. And so whenever possible, I, I, would, I would swing by the, uh, the port of entry where the Border Patrol processing facility was. One... Uh, one of my visits, it was at the very beginning of the summer, and we were already starting to approach a 100-degree temperature. We were seeing um, an increase in the number of Cuban mm -hmm. single adults, women and men, Yeah, I met um, some arriving. Cubans as well. Yeah, uh, so a lot of Cubans to, arriving. And they were being held because ICE was telling Border Patrol, We've got no more bed space. Again, because of this refusal to use alternatives to detention. Mm -hmm. You know, many of these people have sponsors in the US. You can make their sponsors responsible for getting them to their court case. The truth of the matter is the vast majority of them do show up to their court case because they do want asylum. But anyhow, so the, there was this bottleneck with Border Patrol because ICE was saying no more beds. So I went to the Border Patrol, um, port, the, the port of entry downtown to their, to their holding facility. There were about 300 Cubans outside uh, in 100 degree heat. Hmm. Uh, the majority, about two thirds were men, a third were women. And the only thing they had were tarps. And they had just put tarps up outside for shade. You've been in El Paso oh, yeah, it's hot. during the heat. It's it's very hot. It's intensely hot with um, um, concrete outside outside yeah. in the parking lot. And I will tell you, Jared, that the as soon as I walked up, the stench mm -hmm. of the sea of humanity yeah. that was being held outdoors was jarring. The number of people being held was shocking. I did not feel like I was in America. Yeah. And 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 here's the thing. This was this was really the the thank God there weren't children because I've actually seen conditions in cold weather with families and kids having to sleep on rocks outdoors behind chain link fencing um, again because of this administration's refusal to allow for alternatives to detention. Yeah. Now, a lot of these folks are seeking asylum, right? Um, talk about the difference between asylum seekers and others who might uh, try to cross the border without documentation. And that's where we're seeing this shift, and we started to see mm -hmm. this shift five years ago. You know, the, the prior to the last five years, we were getting a lot of single Mexican males uh, crossing the border, fleeing Border Patrol agents, running from Border Patrol agents so that they could make it into the United States mm -hmm. so that they could find work sure. and send money a, back home yeah, for life. economic reasons, right? Yeah. And with the building of the wall, that became worse because 
folks knew they couldn't go back and forth the way they used to. So they had to make their way in and stay in. Um, well, that started changing as Central American families fleeing persecution, fleeing poverty, um, fleeing starvation, fleeing violence, uh, began walking up to Border Patrol mm-hmm. agents saying, I need help. I'm, I'm here to request asylum. Many of them don't even know the process, don't know mm-hmm. exactly that they're asking for asylum. They're, they're asking for refuge in our country. And, but they're not illegal immigrants. Right. Asylum is a legal process in the you American You present system. yourself to, uh, to our authorities right. and you ask permission to come in. And in the meantime, you get to wait in the United States for your claim to be considered and there's a reasonable fear hearing to right. to sort of assess whether you really are you have a valid reason for fearing for your safety back in your home country uh, but all of that has always happened um, outside of a prison like context right that's right that's right and and a couple of points asylum has not kept up with why people are seeking refuge and so the, the you know asylum laws are really really strict. So if you're if you're fleeing if you're you know running for your life from gang violence, right. you you actually don't qualify for asylum. Even though that's that's what we're seeing the vast majority of people leaving. Um, and in many ways, the United States is tied to some of that violence through the guns that mm-hmm. we send um, south, through the palm oil. Um, that we depend on that is, you know, accelerating climate change. I mean, we're so, we're so inextricably linked to why people are migrating. We're a part of the problem. We're a part of the cause. Um, but we're, we're, so we're, we're not, our asylum claims are not keeping up, but you're right. Yes, they're here seeking asylum. Um, but what's happening now, not only are we breaking the rules, but we're breaking laws as a government. And asylum seekers are not even being allowed to wait in the country. They're no longer even being allowed to request, to step foot on American soil and request asylum because right. of Right, so this is metering. a huge change, and I saw that when we went into Juarez because we encountered a young woman who had come up from Central America with her little baby, little year and a half, adorable year and a half uh, year old baby, and they were being forced to sleep in the lobby of this uh, city building in Juarez uh, because they were turned away and told they had to wait. Juarez had, has no way to accommodate all these people that are piling up in Juarez because of our stay in Mexico policy. And this woman who was desperate, she had a, family members that had been murdered, she thought she would be killed if she mm-hmm. went back, said she was going to have no choice but to go back home right. because she had no way to sustain herself for a year, which is what she was told she would have to wait for her reasonable fear hearing to even be held in the United States. So what are you going to do? This is a pretty uh, heartless, uh, at least uh, unintended consequence. Some might say it is the intended consequence of this policy. What do you think? I think it is absolutely the intended consequence. Um, I think the administration recognized how um, the system could be used not for good but for evil and has looked for every possible opportunity with absolutely no care in the world for our laws or for our values. Um, and, and, you know, the, I think most Americans recognize the American uh, immigration system is broken. And 
reform is long overdue. And that's where all of us agree, mm -hmm. Republicans and Democrats, we all agree. This administration took a broken system and shattered it, shattered it into a million little pieces. To, to find our way back is going to be challenging. It's not impossible, though. Let's talk about some of that as, as we wrap up this conversation. What, what are the, the pieces to the, the solution here in this shattered system? I know that uh, we have to make sure that we're being humane in the way we right. treat people that are desperate, that are arriving at our border. That's got to be part of it. You've got a bill. Uh, the Homeland Security Improvement Act that I was happy to, to vote for and co-sponsor. Thank you. Passed out of the House. We're awaiting action in the Senate, but that'll right. address some of the conditions at the border. But beyond that, um, we also need to go upstream into the Central American countries right. that are driving um, this and do some other things. Talk, talk about what you see as the pieces of the solution. The, the, the critical component that's missing is humane leadership at the very top. If we had a leader in the White House who truly wanted to solve this problem, if I were the president, I would bring in all of the leaders from this hemisphere and say, we are about to face a tsunami because of climate change. We have serious challenges. The US, even the most compassionate leader recognizes, we cannot take everyone in. That's impossible. Mm -hmm. So how do we solve this together, Canada, um, South, South American countries, all of us together. How do we face this challenge together? How do we acknowledge and accept our own role in this and begin to change our own behavior and make investments that are wise, build relationships where they are fruitful and productive? And then we've got to change, look at our own laws and accept that because we have been a creator of this problem, um, you know, like many, many of the immigrants, for example, are being reunited with family members who work in construction, agriculture, meat packing. American corporations have benefited mm -hmm. off the labor of these families who now, how dare they, they want to be reunited. Mm -hmm. And so we have an obligation to reunite some of those families. We've got, we've got to create standards, and, but we've got to solve this together, and that takes leadership. Well, wouldn't it be nice to have leadership at the top that connected those dots and actually was able to bring the countries of this hemisphere together on yeah. some coherent and compassionate policies? That's um, right. That's, that's something to think about as we head into an election year. Yes. Thank you for being on Thank my you, podcast. Thank you, I really appreciate it. It was such a pleasure. I want to get back to El Paso soon and see you and, and my old buddy Beto, who I, I want you to keep That'd an eye on great. him. That'd be great. Uh, I'm, I just talked to him this morning, so okay. I'll, I'll be keeping close watch. And yeah, well, would love to have you in El Paso, and I'll make some great enchiladas for you. Love it. Thanks, Veronica. Okay, bye. <laughs>